0: uh focusing on the Gulf. And even that has a uh, nomenclature controversy to it. The uh, Iranians uh, understandably and historically, even legalistically, continue to insist that it be called a Persian Gulf. Um, soldiers and sailors, a lot of particularly serving in Bahrain, uh, had their mail address to them at Bahrain-Arabian Gulf. Um, Once, when I was sailing on the Dow for three days uh, from Dulhagadast to Erede Bay, I was the only um, Westerner white cow uh, allowed on the Dow. And coming back from Oman we're about uh, 40, coming back from Kuwait, to go to Oman, we about 40 Kuwaitis. There were some undesirables who had been expelled from um, this select prison here and there. And there were five or six Iranians who were evading the, the draft in Iran. And I thought, gee, this is an anthropologist, sociologist theme. Um, I can uh, interview all of them about this. Uh, body of water on which we're sailing as to the name. And so I started with the um, Omanis coming back from Kuwait. uh, What is the name of the body of water on which we're sailing? And to a man, there were no women, uh, there were women aboard, but there were no women amongst these. uh, Said uh, Arabian, Khadija And so I noted that duly. And then uh, I'd interview them, I'd to the Iranians uh, who were getting steamed up as they were overhearing the answers, um, and asked them on what uh, what is the new that body of water which we're selling, and they all to a person said, I need to Persian Gulf. And I uh, got to about the third Iranian, and the temperature But the body heat was rising so rapidly and pointedly at me for uh, making them angry that I thought if I don't stop, they're going to throw me overboard. Uh, So the nomenclature is is contentious and understandable. But this is the one part of the planet. One of the implications of this for any country's foreign policies, the one part of the globe, States has mobilized and deployed more forces in the last three and a half decades, killed more people than any other place on the planet in the last three and a half a external refugees than any other place on the earth uh, for which the United States is directly responsible. In other cases, it's indirectly involved and engaged and responsible, and to cause such a large number of domestically displaced people, just like Iraq, with 24 million people before we invaded them. 19, 2003 its population was 24 million immediately 2 million fled the cream of the crop, the best of the middle class and lower upper class pharmacists, doctors, engineers professors, lawyers you name it 1.3 million of them by the way to Syria and the rest to Jordan in large numbers in Beirut today and both countries. Uh, But you add that two million to the two million displaced, that's four million, which is one-sixth of the Iraqi population. In American equivalencies, it would be 50 million people whose lives were shattered. by a country that invaded us illegally. Uh, Show your empathy card here in terms of suspending moral and other judgment and project yourselves into the shoe sold situations of these millions of people who have suffered the implications of America's positions and policies and actions and attitudes toward that region. And by the way, the one point three million that went immediately to Syria, not one of them had a visa. as late as three years after we had invaded we had the active. of them when they conclude their remarks to make recommendations of what the United States should do. Not necessarily only proactively, but in some cases... The point I would like to raise at this point is that there is underappreciation of the importance of the GCC partnership in this country with this administration in particular. We are not free riders. As probably the average American thinks when he hears President Trump keeps bringing up, we protect them and they pay nothing, we pay nothing. We have bought like $300 billion in arms we employ millions of Americans in our investments and our sales, the sales that you make to our part of the world. Your presence, military presence in the Gulf region and the GCC states, is a freebie. We don't charge you. We don't pay rent. We don't cost you a penny as taxpayers. Unlike your favorite ally, the only democracy in the, Arab, the Middle East, Israel. That costs you 3.8 billion dollars a year for every for the for taxpayers. So keep that in mind, and don't believe everything President Trump says. The last count was 5,000 lies over the last two years, and keep counting. What we need to do is really to appreciate each other. I think that's understandable. Just uh, give away, and also just to present what I have in mind. I am mean, not, not reading from a script here. Uh, keep in mind that, uh, or we know that the United States is becoming uh, more self-sufficient when it comes to energy. Maybe this is a shocking news to some of you that the United States now is producing uh, Saudi Arabia. United States produces
1: more oil than Saudi Arabia today, but still, as a leader of the free world, the United States has an obligation
0: to play a major role in leading, rather than retrenchment. What I hear as a specialist in United States and in U.S. politics, domestic and foreign, because I taught uh, U.S. government classes at the University of Oklahoma State University and at the University of Texas uh, 30 years ago. Before I graduated with my PhD from UT Austin, uh, that the, the relationship between the two from America to the Mexican I'm These that I will. I don't know how much time I still have, but I will. I will end by arguing that. tomorrow. thank you. I will argue that we need each other. This alliance will continue. The Karshavinsky issue, with all its uh, sadness, and he was my my friend, uh, will not impact negatively the Saudi uh, U.S. relations. or be some kind of sanctions. But President Trump. relationship really has to, a free we'll, President Trump. Now there are, there are talks of a TCC U.S. summit will take place probably in January in Washington. But before that, United States President Trump administration, although it's completely submerged, with is domestic agenda with all the elections and probably losing the House, the Republicans losing the House and that will impact Trump negatively. The uh, Really, there is an interest by the Trump administration to see the GCC healthy and back to its playing its major role, as I argue in my book, and the United States has really to play its leadership role, supporting the Kuwaiti initiative, push forward for a resolution of this crisis, and I welcome the positive remarks I heard last week from uh, uh, the Grand Prince of Saudi Arabia on Qatar, strong economy and it will be much different and much better in the next five years and also the the, the, the argument of what uh, the Saudi foreign minister and Manama dialogue stated
1: uh, last week uh, regarding the issue of uh, there is a military uh, cooperation between the GCC states and Qatar and there are, there are some GCC t-
0: troops uh, are stationed in al Airbase, which is the largest air base United States uses outside uh, this country. So these positive, baby steps, confidence-building measures will have to be built upon by the U.S. administration and support of the Kuwaiti mediation, diplomacy, to see some kind of uh, resolution to this really unnecessary crisis that is in a zero-something, weakening everybody, and harming the interest of all of us, even with interest United States at this very critical and juncture time. I finish by saying one last point. If President Trump is serious about establishing the Arab NATO, or as it is called, the Middle East Strategic Alliance, then there is one more that has to be done, and that is to resolve the GCC crisis, to have one unison voice, one strong stand to deal with all the crises that are really. impacting negatively the stability and security of one of the most important regions in the world and that is to help solve the GCC crisis. And then we will have a united front facing Iran, facing Daesh, terrorism,
1: and all other consequences. And it's very consequential time uh, that we are living in. And I hope President Trump
0: will step into, uh, into this effort and help rather than hurt this company was something that pleases his face but does not solve the crisis that we are. In. from 300 to 400 participants. Good morning everybody. It's a a great pleasure uh, to be here again. Uh, Thank you, John Duke, Anthony, and your team for the kind invitation. It's always nice to come back to D.C. and see some uh, friends and make new ones. Uh, After all that uh, long introduction, I don't think I deserve it. anything you want. Uh, so I'm going to take that privilege and say a few things about uh, how do I see it. Um, it's not going to differ so much from what you've been hearing since yesterday. Obviously, we've that the region is just moving from one crisis to another. Every time since I became interested in politics and academia research, in going to different conferences, different uh, seminars, talking around the world, and we just see that the region is just moving from one crisis to the other. It doesn't get better. It's descending in so many different ways. And One last region that we were hoping that is gonna stay intact And protect itself from all these crises, was the GCC, the Deaf Cooperation Council countries. Um, It's really unfortunate to see that um, the whole region, the whole Middle East, is so uh, much blessed with resources, um, hydrocarbon, etc., excellent location between East and West blessed with its own people uh, with so much diversity and, and culture, and yet it seems that it's also a region that is doomed to have crisis and you'll know, wonder what, uh, what is going wrong, and I'm sure that question has been asked many times. Many of us in the region to the conclusion that it is the outside. It's the others who are creating this crisis. It's the Americans. Uh, It's the Europeans. It's the colonial history. Um, Whoever you know uh, that we try and point our finger to um, we we jump into that conclusion. The last thing we uh, really admit is that we are actually the main people who are creating our own crisis. It's not to say that the others cannot be blamed. But it is wrong to point all the time to the outsiders that they are creating our own crisis. We are very good at creating our own crisis. We have excellence uh, uh, in, in that. Now what the region doesn't really need is more crisis, obviously. We've had enough of that. What the region doesn't really need is more conflict. It certainly doesn't need more authoritarian uh, regimes, one man rule that um, that can uh, sometimes wreak havoc. We've seen examples of that. Saddam, Gaddafi, etc. What the region doesn't really need. once al His Excellency uh, Abdullah Zayani um, who I um, caught in the corner uh, after that, talk, and I said, look, I really want to salute you uh, on what you have to say. And that was, he had one message, and that was interdependence of the countries in the region.
1: And I asked him
0: yesterday, as I did ask him once before in a conference in Cambridge, Your Excellency, can you elaborate a little bit more on that? I asked who's in and who's out of this interdependence? Who are the parties? And in a very tactful and diplomatic way, he gave me an answer that satisfies me to a certain limit, but I'm going to still press him on that uh, at some point. I think what the region needs is that, is interdependence. But I would go also beyond that, Your Excellency, if you allow me, and I would say more inclusiveness. We need more inclusiveness in the region. We need more inclusiveness within each country. Inclusiveness of uh, political participation, for example. We need to build institutions in those countries that can actually create some checks and balances in what's going on. We don't need another Hitler in the region, and without, ex- uh, without institutions that that kind of checks and balances and without freedom of expression and media, another Hitler of some sort will come up. We don't need that. We certainly don't need occupation. We don't need further bullying. We need more cooperation between uh, the countries. We don't accept the countries as they are, as imperfect as they are. The boundaries is not drawn by the socio-political uh, evolution uh, of, of these uh, countries. It's being been drawn by the colonial powers and we can argue about them for the rest of our lives. Other countries that were also so unfortunate that they were colonized. They had the same problems, but they have managed to overcome it. They accepted the status quo. They accepted their boundaries. They accepted uh, that this is the systems that we have, and we've got to work together in an interdependent world, in an interdependent region, in a more inclusive region. What we don't need as well is for people calling for regime change. We don't need
1: that. We have problems with our regime, certainly we
0: do, but the regimes have also to, um, in some countries of course, and this has to evolve with time. And we don't want one country calling that we want to regime. Council. But we still have a Gulf Cooperation Council that has done so much for the integration of the region. And I would also agree with my colleague and friend the who mentioned that Thank The United States had to live up to its own principles and values. That's what we need the United States to do. We need the United States to stop meddling, to
1: stop meddling in the, in the region, one thing. But we need the United States to also
0: help in the way that it actually helped Europe. It's not necessarily coming from from the United States, but it could come from the countries in the region. Thank you, Dr. Babu, for thinking out of the box now. It's fantastic when we've passed the essence of what you recommend uh, to begin to act out of the box. Uh, But action can also be in the form of words. Uh, You talk about credibility. Uh, No one here would disagree with you on that. And as simple as uh, mean what you say say what you mean. If you say you really regard international law as one of the most important uh, features of another country with which we would have a retained relationship, then we have to be a model ourselves in upholding uh, international law. Uh, if we talk about uh, democratic processes and behavior, and we have to behave democratically in our own processes twice in 18 years. describe what has been described the region as the portland of religions, the, what they call it, the capital of cultures and civilizations. So this is, I think, a very challenge that we are facing, and we need to, to find a way to, to lift the society together together. So it, is the. it is a challenge, it is a crisis, it is a painful uh, fact. Uh, I just attended the, my name was there and some of the European uh, ministers or countries talked about the need to end this war and sometimes some of them said immediately and we support that. And we need that more than anybody else because we are suffering from that. We are seeing the, and facing the problems in our own country, especially in Saudi Arabia. And I would, if, if there is really uh, any attempts to end that war, I ask the Europeans, the Americans, whoever wants to end that war, to help us to bring the Houthis, the militias, and to the table of negotiations the National Dialogue, we had the, uh, the Gulf Initiative, we had Kuwait negotiation, and also we had the Geneva negotiation, and the Houthis well, didn't patent that, that as well. So please do help us and bring the Houthis to the table negotiation, taking consideration their percentage in the Yemeni society, and they will be, can be, and they should be part of the political map of Yemen, but nobody would accept to have a state within a state who wouldn't want to uh, another Hezbollah on our border, southern border, Saudi Arabia, and th- I think the Americans wouldn't like to have another state within a state next to their borders, because they have now 5,000 uh, troops in the, the border of Mexico, and there's no state within a state that pays. So. Just put yourself in our shoes and think in that way. Uh, And other issues, let's let's talk about regional issues. Uh, I think uh, I would would maybe uh, bring your attention to the late uh, Saudi attempts to solve problems in the Horn of Africa. Uh, That is in a very important part of the world, that's very important. For many reasons, for the Americans, for the Europeans, for China, for Russia, for our, our, for our countries in the region. And so we have seen the, the peace agreement between Ethiopia and Eritrea, And we have seen the meeting, the historical meeting between the leaders of Eritrea and Djibouti in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, like a month or two months ago. That, that seems, means a lot. later on. Uh, so I think uh, helping the, the regional countries to participate in, in modern, the peace region of peace world war is very important to that and I think we need the help in that region and in, uh, in other places. Another I think example we, I would mention is Iran. It's my specialty and Iran is our neighbour. We cannot change the geography, we cannot change the, we cannot replace uh, Iran with Switzerland
1: or any country. We have to deal with that fact. We have historical ties with
0: Iran, culture, religion. You call it lots of ties. I've been in Iran many times, I studied in Iran, so it's very important to know that. but... Our problem is with the political system in Iran, with, not with the Iranian people, with militias, with the interfering of uh, our internal affairs, with the uh, spying cells, with uh, sending movements to those groups from Yemen in the north to, the Yemen, to Yemen in the south. So, if Iran wants to have a better relation with their neighboring countries, they have uh, to stop interfering in our country's internal affairs to reconcile the relation with the neighbor. I will give you an example. I thought the nuclear deal would suffer problems with the neighboring countries. The JTC would follow directly if they uh, reach a deal with the Western countries with the United States and the five plus one. That was a very wrong, uh, that was a miscalculation and very wrong uh, thinking. It's over now. If they start a negotiation with their neighboring countries, they will be helpful to reach a very reasonable agreement uh, between B5, B5 plus one and Iran. And uh, our problem, uh, I think this is maybe the first time to mention this point, uh, our problem not only with Iranian nuclear weapon, it's with it's the behavior in the region, but when it comes to the the nuclear issue. Uh, Just think what those bases Uh, are basically. Think about the military. And the ancient Greek heavens and of the it will accept more refugees from that part of the world. We're still in thousand journey. That the journey, which is this changing of the dynamics, changing of ties, changing of the allies between countries. People think uh, China now is emerging very strongly, even strongly, but about city, they are now in the Arabian Sea beyond. Just trying to strengthen their uh, presence in Africa. Russia likewise, so, how would the Western countries think if, with the current problems, the media attack in Saudi Arabia and so the Gulf countries? What would happen if all those countries change their oath to start changing, making, looking to the, to the east? I think it's wise, if you want to, for the Americans, if they want to confront China, they don't need to go to the Asia Pacific. They have to start first from the Middle East. So I think this part of the world facing lots of challenges. And uh, I would finish with what has been, uh, what is said now in our part of the world, Saudi Arabia and other countries, especially about the mediation now, about Jamal Khashoggi nobody, there is nobody clean hand in this world. You think many occasions, historical problems happened from Afghanistan, from Iraq, from other parts of the world. Nobody painted the head of stress. Nobody was built to justice. So, if we want to reach the point there's We have to help those parts that the can Saudi Arabia in bringing those 15 people or 18 people to justice, but not to use or misuse this event for other uh, political projects in the region. Thank you very much. Uh, here, please uh, have that conversation outside of the back. Thank you. Um, Joshua
1: uh, Yaffe has been working on these issues for almost half a day.
0: town is quite a long time. As many of you will know, there's not a lot of uh, historical memory or institutional memory in a lot of the institutions here in town. But I would just like to preface this by doing the usual acknowledgement. The following remarks are entirely my own and do not reflect the opinions or attitudes of the State Department or the U.S. Government. As the usual disclaimer. Also, I would like to thank, in addition to the National Council, which is a wonderful institution, I'd like to thank the King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies. Many of you saw Prince Turkey yesterday. I'd also like to thank the Library of Congress here in town for the wonderful resources that they have to offer. We should all take advantage of them. Now, the focus of my talk will be the bilateral relationship between Saudi Arabia and Iran. A nice, safe topic that was easy to clear through the building. Uh, When I say bilateral, I want to emphasize that there was an actual relationship. Uh, for many decades, both before the Islamic Revolution and after the Islamic Revolution, and when academics address the matter of studying iranian relations, usually this history of bilateral engagement is relegated to the historical past. It's dismissed as kind of a, an unnecessary uh, academic discussion, um, very theoretical and very historical. That's usually what academics Journalists, think tank people prefer to stick to something that, it, that it is dealing with the competition for regional leadership, proxy wars in Yemen, Iraq, and Syria, uh, sectarian tensions, very theoretical, high-level, thousand foot-level discussions. Um, and think tank experts, usually the policy recommendations they make towards the end of their speeches, their, their uh, papers, whatever it might be, Usually, they're calling for a back channel diplomacy in the form of European nations or Japan sponsoring some sort of track two discussions or, or similar uh, back channels. It's almost as though there's never been any direct communication between the two sides, and they can't possibly reach out to one another on their own. That's the assumption that's often made in these, these arguments. I think that reflects a lack of historical knowledge on our part in the West. rather than the reality. Here in the West is often tied to the assumption that two countries have never had normal bilateral relations, that they are somehow immune to rational arguments about the benefits of cooperation, and that a third party is necessary to bridge the gap. I'm not sure I believe any of those things to be true. Now it is true that today Iran's malign activities in places like Syria, Yemen, Thank you.
1: Sorry about that. I'm so, on my career. so, even a
0: person like Mohammed Ahmadinejad, Ahmadinejad, who clearly had no intention of making peace with Saudi Arabia, visited Saudi Arabia early in his first term. You can see the pictures of it. It's exactly what I'm talking about. Mohammedinejad on Hajj, Mohammedinejad uh, eating ketza with senior Saudi leaders. to give you a sense of the visit what the visit was all about. There were a number of issues at stake, and it was loaned for about ten months. You can read about it in Faisal and Selman's book on Saudi-Iranian relations. He does very good write about this. Okay. And here we have the camera screen. Okay, I show you the picture from the day before of the Shah and the Shah's wife leaving from the, the airport in
1: This is the first day of the visit. It was about a five-day visit in Jeddah. They went to
0: Mecca, they went to Medina. This is all the Saudi press. I just wanted to please take care of this microphone. It's, it's clearly got problems. Thanks. Appreciate it. And there you go as the visit moves on. I also want to show you the Iranian press because obviously that matters. That matters for domestic consumption. This is a big part of the reason why Iranian politicians want to be in Saudi Arabia. Again, to be seen as a leader of the region and recognized as such by the Saudi king. This is And of course, the best picture of all. It's hard to read the caption, but it says, that the Masjid, al Nabi in Medina. is in the nuclear program, as we all do. These are confidence-building measures. This is what Saudi Arabia seeks to form of quiet diplomacy. They don't need the big camera spray. Right? They don't need the photos in the newspapers. The Saudis were doing this because they understand what Iran's looking for, it's for Iran's benefit. It's a deliverable. So in that 2000 security agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran, the two people that were negotiating it were Prince Nakhif when he was Minister of Interior, and the Iranian secretary of the National Security Council, who at the time was Hassan Rouhani. It's, it's remarkable to that the one person who came closest to normalizing ties between Saudi Arabia and Iran is the same person who serves as president of Iran today. And I'd like to share with you an interview that Rouhani gave in 2004, just a couple years after that agreement. And he gave this interview to a Saudi newspaper, he gave it to Adriaan. And in that interview, which I'm sorry I don't have up it there, it was hard to find on the website, and I have an old copy that I printed out. Uh, you, you have Romani interviewed by a Saudi journalist in a Saudi newspaper, telling the journalist that he recognizes, that Iran recognizes, they need to extradite terrorist suspects in Saudi Arabia, they need to affirm the importance of security on the Hajj, and that they need to deny any export of the revolution in any military or political sense. He is speaking the language of the Saudis. And he's doing it to his Saudi newspapers. that they can get the message. They can have their fears the assuaged. He understood the concerns of the Saudis. He understood how to message them through their own press. Um, and more than that, the Saudis are capable
1: of doing the same thing. When we look back at that 1968 visit, you see King Faisal
0: has very specific confidence-building measures on his mind relating to a maritime border treaty, and he gives an interview months before, in May, through a Kuwaiti newspaper, Asyasa, in which he tries to assuage the Iranian fears regarding a maritime treaty and uh, shared oil fields in the northern part of the maritime border. So you see these two countries speaking each other's diplomatic language, not in the past, but today. We can go all the way back to King Abdulaziz, and you can see the same process at work. King Abdulaziz is facing widespread accusations by his rivals that his forces have damaged the holy sites in Medina in 19, as he takes over the Hejaz. So he invites all the Muslim nations to come and verify that the cities and their inhabitants have been treated with respect and dignity. The first person who responds to that call is Reza Shah. He sent two delegations October nineteen twenty-five, and around the same time he offered to mediate between Ibn Saud and the Hashemites uh, during the siege of Jeddah. He also sent representatives to the Islamic Conference of Mecca in nineteen twenty-six. All of these things are very typical aspects of Iranian diplomacy. And you see Ibn Saud responding by looking for a uh, recognition which he gets, the Friendship Treaty of 1929, signed in Tehran. Moving on. I'm going to wrap up since I know we're over time. Now, as far as Raphani goes today, in the situation today, Obviously, the President of Iran doesn't make every decision in Tehran. The supreme leader is the one who decides whether Iran is ready for peace in the Gulf, and the supreme leader clearly is not ready for that. And ever since the Saudi embassy and the consular were destroyed by mobs in January 2016, there's been a little prospect for reconciliation. And I hope that these examples illustrate the fact that even with the two sides, have had very different expectations of one another. They know what the other is looking for, and they know how to engage if they choose to. They have a historical memory of engagement both before and after the Islamic revolution with a continuity of that process all the way through, and they're capable of working out their differences on their own when the time is right. There's no kind of Western-led back-channel mediation that might somehow magically show these two neighbors how to bridge their divide in a way they haven't already considered. Thank you. me that there is so much knowledge and experience in this room. Uh, many of them were struck by the challenges and That's right. You don't have any of those anymore, uh, except in Bahrain, yes you would, where there are estimated 11,000 American naval-centric people on any one day, and Kuwait, um, more than that, maybe 15,000. Thank you. twice in Oman, but many had in Yemen, to the degree that uh, an American Institute uh, for Yemeni Studies was formed and still exists. such as the GCC Railway, well, we know that that's stalled and it missed its um, target date. Um, But to what extent is it still valid and viable for the future? And what will be the implications uh, for that? And perhaps that will be answered best. Um, Saudi Arabia react to the reemergence of South Yemen as a state. Uh, So we've had previous efforts to secede uh, by those who live in South Yemen and want to restore what was once the People's Republic of South Yemen and the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen. small fraction of that of Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, the Emirates, Qatar, And Israel, as well as uh, Turkey. Uh, how do you respond to this question that Iran's presence in other countries in the region may be, from an Iranian perspective, or an objective clinical detection viewpoint, a form of forward defense in its missile development designed to deter attacks on Iran. And then lastly, uh, there was a soft one, airport coordination. The foreign policy for the GCC uh, in the absence of coordinated policy. Um, Joshua, you can take a look at uh, one of those. From down here. Yeah, I didn't mix around. Um, okay, so, yeah, I would uh, I could, could try and tackle the Yemen question, I suppose. Uh, How would would Saudi Arabia react to the emergence of the South Yemen? Well, there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there. Um, They've been out there for 30 years about uh, Saudi interests in the hot remote of oil pipelines going down to the coast. I don't know how much of that is true or not true over the years. I'm not sure how much of that is uh, propaganda by separatists in Southern Yemen who would like to justify or legitimize their, their separatist ambitions. I think that Saudi Arabia is problematic at the end of the day. I think they understand that this is their backyard and they have to work with whatever comes out of the war and uh, the ambitions of strong militias. that whatever the Yemenis decide or whatever uh, the Yemenis uh, uh, come to in the end of this war, that Saudi Arabia will adjust. Um, And will find a way to to work hopefully with whoever does emerge from that. That doesn't mean that Saudi Arabia doesn't have preferred outcomes. The problem is I'm not sure how much uh, people in Riyadh have thought through the, the desired outcomes they want to achieve. It especially in terms of second-order effects or third-order effects. And I think the best thing that the studies can do now is to think about contingency scenarios so that they are prepared for whatever outcome does, does emerge. Mm-hmm. Thanks. All right. Uh, I'll go about articulate uh, the question that I handed you on a card and then uh, be the person who has the first work at how to what extent will regional dimensions or infrastructure projects, uh, such as the GCC Railway, so just focus on that. Thank you, John. Um, Um, I think the two are somehow related. And I would uh, start by saying that, um, just taking a step back and saying, what is the GCC? What is uh, the Gulf Cooperation Council? It's a simple word, it's a regional organization that is based on rules, it's a rule-based organization. It is independent, but yet connected to the member states, and this is something that regional uh, integration theories us. And this is how the EU, that somehow the GCC is trying to uh, assemble itself from the EU, is actually uh, functioning. Now regional organizations, they are based on their base rules, based on rules, and first and foremost is you have to respect those rules. These rules are signed by the member states, by the leaders of member states, and in this case the GCC, Cooperation Operation Council, signed a number of rules, uh, and agreement, one of them is the most pointed, is the, uh, the common uh, referred to by Sexton and survey, which calls for a free flow of goods, people and capital. Amazing agreement that, you know, the whole region becomes one market, uh, as it were, which is great for development, for investment, for uh, um, employment, and for social contacts. So, the current crisis, unfortunately, touched on this agreement. And unfortunately, um, you know, the, the what they would call it, a, a boycott or a blockade, is touched, has touched the rule of the GCC states that have written down. And also within the GCC state, there are decision mechanisms. One of them is the Supreme Council. So any change in the agreement has to go logically to the Supreme Council. This current crisis in the Gulf with Qatar has taken place outside the mechanisms of the GCC, but it relates to the GCC agreement, which I think inadvertently undermines uh, the GCC, which I don't think when they took this decision, the leaders thought about it. So what we need to do is get respect back to the GCC as an independent, Regional organisation that is uh, that has been agreed between these things, and then from there onwards start activating the uh, uh, the agreements that we already have, because this crisis, unfortunately, that we see seen we're witnessing now in the Gulf, has stopped uh, in some ways. You trade between the member states has stopped, movement of people, etc., and investment. Uh, need to do is also, because of this agreement, some kind of uh, cooperative project that the GCC was working on has been affected. One of them is the railway. How could you have a railway when one country is outside or is being uh, uh, blockaded or uh, blockaded? How can you have regional uh, projects like you know the, the, uh, the electricity grid, etc.? How can you build confidence within of the GCC, let alone the leaders of the GCC states that are not part of this conflict, but also how can you build confidence within the partners of the GCC like the US, like the EU, like other uh, 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 global powers that are negotiating with the GCC. So unfortunately, without thinking, I hope it was not intended, this agreement has actually undermined the GCC, and I hope that the GCC will come back Doing such a good job in terms of regional integration, cooperation, uh, etc. And activate this dispute resolution
1: mechanism that is, uh, that is there to sort out problems within the
0: GCC. Now, what countries can do to uh, uh, enhance cooperation? Uh, that was a question I think that was asked from the floor. I think first of all, they need to end conflict and start confidence building measures and respect the rules that they have signed. If you don't do that, you think about moving forward uh, with cooperation. Um, so you need to expect existing agreements, you have to activate them, and you have to learn, also we have to learn from other regions in the world. We're not the only region uh, that has conflicts uh, as well and disputes, etc. Asia, i finished there. Asia has its own, but it has Asia and South America has its own uh, 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 Mercosur. So we can learn from these agreements, from these uh, regions and develop from everyone. Thank you. Thank you. I, I know it seems unfair and inhumane, cruel, and something worse. Uh, I had to truncate a session where you have this kind of uh, heavyweight uh, intellectual uh, assemblage of specialists. Um, wanted to uh, make a... The comment on Iran, but it has to be short and crisp and to the point of Bella. And uh, a more generalized one is just to assess the Trump administration's um, successes if any uh, since the Trump administration has taken office uh, on issues of concern uh, to the GCC. And i me to in here say we go ahead of Bella there is the issue of education and entrapment to the security dilemma that we teach uh, regarding security dilemma of partnership between a small ally and a major a powerful ally. The smaller party to, be, to this alliance, in our case, the PCC states feel,
1: they feel either they are entrapped by the policy
0: that is undertaken by the more powerful ally, which is United States, either by abandonment, as it was the case under the Obama administration when they struck a deal uh, uh, behind closed doors with the Omani participation and then later on after it was divulged in
1: Geneva without us knowing as the allies of the United States regarding the
0: uh, joint comprehensive plan of action with Iran of abandonment uh, or the entrapment, that we don't have a say and uh, what's going on right now with the, Obama, with the Trump administration slapping Iran with heavy sanctions and cutting off its oil uh, export to all the world. Uh, what are the uh, drawbacks of this? Is he helping the outliers? Is there a plan B? So, there is an issue always with this with, 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 the, with the smaller uh, junior partner to this alliance. Then with the continuing and the continuous attack by the Trump himself, the Trump himself against Saudi Arabia, reminding them how weak they are, reminding them the protection, reminding them they have to pay. And that's that. And if he does that to Saudi Arabia, but the smaller Gulf states. On top of that, and I'm just finishing, uh, on top of that, there are now major by Richard Harris regarding the world in this survey, and recently the empty throne by Dadler and Lancy about the United States' application, its role and leadership in the world. How, how does that play in the minds of the leadership and the people of uh, the Gulf region and other United States allies? So we are, uh, in my opinion, I, I close with this at crossroads between the. Uh, in us and United States, we have a cross deficit and lack of confidence with this administration and among the GCC states because of the Qatar issue and because of the GCC crisis. One last point, less than half a minute, regarding Iran budget, yeah, it's true, it's marginal compared to the GCC, especially Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and UAE and even Qatar. But Iran outplays everybody in the region with what we call asymmetrical warfare. And how they uh, deploy their revolutionary guard and how they choose our
1: uh, capitalism, our mistakes, by being in these uh, political
0: countries like Lebanon, like Syria, like Yemen. And we do not have that uh, inkling that the Iranians or that that, 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 that proxy, power that the Iranians have. So don't look at numbers only look at how Iran uh, utilizes and takes advantage of uh, the region and of its allies that it has fostered and uh, played a major role in, in prepping them up over the last decades. Thank you, Abdullah. Those were superb uh, responses. I hope those taking notes took note, those points, because you can use them in your own conversations to multiply, effect fact, uh, a beneficial uh, dimensions. He, he punched through uh, some of the misinformation and uh, a faulty conceptualization regarding the region. Um, now I'm going to do two things. I'm going to ask the four to, um, in, a, in 40 seconds to go to the back and to the atrium there. And those who asked questions that we couldn't get to, you can go back should go back, you must go back there and put them with the questions in the atrium area so you will not disturb the next session coming here. But Mohammed, I guess the last word, two minutes. Well, uh, maybe shorter of that. Uh, First question is about the budget. It's, uh, I can take it more with the uh, uh, for the sanctions and so forth importing so they try to do it at home. But also they try to, well, they, they buy, they buy uh, weapons from North, uh, North, uh, uh, North Korea and China and sometimes from Russia, which is maybe cheaper compared to uh, to the Western countries. Uh, so that this is a point. Also, uh, it is a matter of how to use this weapon, not than to, to, whether to buy weapons. Question. The other question is about forward, uh, the presence of Iran, which should some people call it forward uh, strategy or you
1: defensive know, strategy data, defensive strategy. Uh, this data and narrative.
0: They use it everywhere. That we are defending ourselves. But just think about it. Yemen is not a very close country to, to Iran set above the border, so you cannot call it a defensive Nigeria, what is surprising, is that militias It's not a defensive, so, and it is, there is no threat from those countries against Iran, they are the ones who are attacking those countries, so a defensive strategy cannot really accept it, and it's not a logical of thank you very much. Thank you, Mohammed, uh,
1: please join me in a of appreciation for this, superb security